Looking for more information about lobster industry issues from the perspective of U.S. and Canadian researchers? Tune in to this episode of Maine Policy Matters to learn more. This is the Maine Policy Matters podcast from the Margaret Chase Smith Policy Center at the University of Maine. I'm Eric Miller, Research Associate at the Center. On each episode of Maine Policy Matters, we discuss public policy issues relevant to the state of Maine. Today we will be covering James and Anne Atchison's article entitled, What Does the Future Hold for Maine's Lobster Industry? Which covers problems the industry faces that threaten its future, including shell disease, climate change, increased regulations to protect right whales, and economic uncertainty. They also focused on several approaches that could help protect the lobster industry, including enacting lower trap limits, expanding markets for live and processed lobster, and increasing in-state processing capacity. This article was published in Volume 29, Number 2 of Maine Policy Review, a peer-reviewed academic journal published by the Policy Center. James, who went by Jim, was an eminent, internationally recognized scholar whose work transcended disciplinary boundaries including anthropology, economics, biology, public policy, and natural resource management. He received three National Science Foundation grants and authored over 90 articles in professional journals, along with five books, including, most notably, The Lobster Gangs of Maine, published in 1988, in Capturing the Commons, Devising Institutions to Manage the Maine Lobster Industry, published in 2004. This episode is dedicated to Jim's life and the work he accomplished. After briefly summarizing the article, we will speak with Rick Wally, Patrice McCarran, and Jeff Irvin about what has been happening in the lobster industry in the two years since the article was published. Rick Wally is a professor in the University of Maine School of Marine Sciences and is the director of the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine. Patrice McCarran is the executive director at Maine Lobstermen's Association and the president of the Maine Lobstermen's Community Alliance. Jeff Irvin is the executive director of the Lobster Council of Canada. Lobster is the most valuable fishery in the country and most lobsters landed in the United States are caught in Maine. Lobsters have been an important food source for New Englanders since early colonial times and for indigenous peoples before. In more recent years, overall lobster landings were worth $485.4 million in 2019. The Maine lobster industry is one of the world's most successful fisheries, with a high of 132.5 million pounds being caught in 2016. From 2018 to 2019, catches declined but still remained over 100 million pounds each year, playing a significant role in Maine's economy. Despite the relative success of the industry, it may face increasing problems in the future. When their article was published in 2020, Jim and Ann Atchison named shell disease, climate change, North Atlantic right whales, and markets, tariffs, and other economic matters as the four major problems facing the lobster industry today. Epizootic shell disease produces unsightly pits, growths, and lesions so that the affected lobsters cannot be sold as high-quality dinner lobsters. Shell disease has had a small effect on Maine's lobsters to date, but has had disastrous effects on catches in Rhode Island waters. Between 2008 and 2013, an estimated 30% of Rhode Island's fishermen were put out of business and others faced severely reduced incomes. Climatic change due to an increase in atmospheric warming has led to increased storms, retreating ice, and rising sea levels that have caused lobsters in Maine waters to shift to colder Canadian waters. Lobster industry advocates do say that lobster can be caught all along the Maine coast despite this observation in the general movement north. Changes in herring movements leading to large schools of herring seeking cooler and deeper waters is leading to a scarcity of a major bait source in Maine waters. 
All of the ecological complexities regarding climatic change in the Gulf of Maine are something that researchers are continuing to understand. The lobster industry's problems with the right whales began in 1996 when Max Strahan, who had petitioned the federal government to list the spotted owl as an endangered species in the Pacific Northwest, sued the Commonwealth of Massachusetts under the Endangered Species Act to prevent whales from being killed by lobster gear. In a different suit brought to court in 2020 by conservation organizations, the federal judge hearing the case ruled in their favor and found that the federal government was not doing enough to protect right whales from being entangled by lobster gear. Fishermen feel that they are being unfairly targeted because most whales are killed by ship strikes and the proposed rules do nothing to curb ship strikes. Environmentalists argue the law is still not being enforced and that whales are still being killed by lobster gear. The Maine lobster industry believes that its whale protection plan is not being given enough credit for reducing risk to the whales. The latest federal omnibus spending bill included a six-year pause on new whale regulations while funding research as well as innovative fishing gear development, which has been celebrated by the lobster industry and criticized by some environmental groups. Lobster fishermen have faced economic problems for a number of years, which they describe as a cost-price squeeze. Between 2003 and 2013, the cost of bait increased 500% in response to reductions in the quota fishermen are allowed to catch. Other costs to fishermen have also skyrocketed. Fuel prices increased from $1.50 per gallon in 2002 to $5 per gallon in 2010. Prices declined in 2020, but increased again in May of 2022 to peak at $6.43 per gallon for diesel before lowering to the mid to low $5 per gallon mark later in 2022, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. A new 36-foot lobster boat, which might have cost $125,000 in 1998, can cost upwards of $400,000 in 2020. The decline in revenue combined with markedly higher costs has put many fishermen in precarious financial straits. An economic study points out that there have recently been large year-to-year -year swings in lobster prices, quantities, and revenue. In 2020, the market for lobsters was reduced again by the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only had the Asian market already been shrinking due to the Chinese-American trade wars, but the European market also contracted due to the pandemic. Jim and Ann Atchison detail hope for the future in the face of these industry problems, including trap limits that would reduce costs for bait, fuel, and traps, while also reducing the number of lines in the water which can aid the right whale problem. Lobster marketing and expansion of local processing capability can also increase lobster sales and increase income to fishermen, dealers, and others in the industry. Now, two years after the Atchison's article, the Maine lobster industry continues to face challenges outlined in this piece and new ones as well. For example, the recent suspension of the lobster industry certificate of sustainability from the Marine Stewardship Council led to a pause in purchasing Maine's lobsters by some major retailers, such as Whole Foods. These retailers use these certificates as a primary guide to, for informing consumers about the sourcing of their seafood products. This move to stop buying Maine's lobsters was criticized by Senators Collins and King, Representatives Pingree and Golden, as well as Governor Mills. Now that we have covered the Atchison's arguments, we will move into our panel discussion about their article. We have with us today Rick Wally, Patrice McCarran, and Jeff Irvin about some of these issues and what the future might hold. Alrighty, thank you all for joining us today. So to each of you, how does the lobster industry most significantly affect the economic and environmental well-being of coastal communities? 
Are local impacts of Maine's and Atlantic Canada's lobster industries similar or quite different? We'll start with Patrice and Rick to cover Maine and round out with Jeff's Canadian perspective. Great. Well, I'll kick us off from Maine's perspective. Um, I think it would be impossible to overstate the economic importance of the Maine lobster industry to the state of Maine. We are uniquely structured here in that we have an owner-operator business model. So every vessel in Maine is owned and operated by the captain. So the state licenses about 4,800 people, which means those are 4,800 small businesses. They're located in our rural communities. So all of the money that we earn, um, which is you know between 500 and 750 million dollars a year annually, direct at the dock, is spent locally. So in most coastal communities, the first dollar in those communities is oftentimes a lobster dollar. So if we didn't have those lobster dollars, um, we wouldn't have economic economic opportunity, we wouldn't have a good tax base, we wouldn't have kids in school. So it really is um, the foundation of, of the coast for the state of Maine. Yeah, and for Cantwell, well, I'm delighted to be here with you to, uh, to have this discussion. Uh, we're so linked in terms of our uh, lobster sector in North America. So uh, we work together on, on everything. So, um, so it's the same in Atlantic Canada and Quebec, Eastern Canada. Um, there are literally hundreds of, of communities that rely on the lobster sector. I think I did, I did a bit of re research on there are 329 ports in uh, Atlantic Canada and 174 of them have a landed value of over a million dollars per port. So that's a, a dramatic impact. Um, that's on the harvesting side, on the shoreside sector, it's also extremely important. Uh, we have literally hundreds of lobster plants in those hundreds of communities. Um, the landed value in 2021 was over $2 billion. So that's uh, X vessel money in the pockets of harvesters um, to pay, you know, to, to run their businesses, but with some profit at the end of it. And for the exporters, over $3 billion in export value. So um, by far the most important seafood sector in Canada. And you asked about the environmental well-being. Um, it's it, you know, it's it's a, a kind of a constant battle between the economic value and the environmental impact of the sector, um, which we we all work on every day to try to mitigate. But certainly, the seafood sector and the lobster sector, you know, provide some negative environmental impacts. Uh, but but I think everybody in the sector works hard to to mitigate those. Great. Well, and I'll just follow on Patrice here. Too. And first, I just want to say this is a, such a great opportunity to to bring Patrice and Jeff together from you know both sides of the border and uh, to celebrate Jim Atchison's uh, contribution to um, sort of the human side of the the, the lobster science and the lobster world. Um, but to get to your to your question, Eric, um, <clears throat> you know, Patrice said it. Well, and I'll just um, paraphrase, I mean, really, the American lobster, again, is the most valuable single species fishery for both countries. And um, this, you know, 90% of the US harvest value comes from, from the Gulf of Maine and about 80% comes from Maine itself. So Maine is really sort of the, the elephant in the room when it comes to the US side in, in any case. Um, and, you know, while the the landed value actually um, of just the landed value of 
lobsters comprises uh, about one to two percent of Maine's GDP. That's not counting the the um, a number of other industries that really depend on on this fishery that would really inflate that that um, that GDP GDP contribution. So um, I'm talking about you know everything from trap makers, boat builders, the restaurant industry, tourism, and you can go on. Um, and so uh, you know this is it's just a really important um, not only part of Maine's economy but to our national fisheries ecology uh, economy and um, and. Uh, a really important international um, trade item as well. Yeah, thank you all for for your uh, various perspectives on on um, kind of the greater context in of the lobster industry in in the North Atlantic area. And um, Jim and Ann in their article do note. Um, uh, and commend the uh, yeah the lobster industry on how they jointly manage sustainable harvesting, um, but there have been um, increasing um, concerns and, and discussion surrounding the uh, practices, and we'll get into those a little bit further. And then um, climate change on the horizon, as well as uh, ex external uh, environmental threat. Um, so given the recent threat developments in cost of operations and relatively lower market price of lobster, how are fishermen with smaller boats and nearshore operations feeling about the future of the lobster industry and how their long-term business viability compared with fishermen who have larger boats and fish 50 plus miles offshore? How have relaxing of COVID-19 restrictions and changes in overseas markets changed this outlook? I guess I can I can jump in again for Maine. Um, you know the the lobster fisheries are wild caught fisheries. So anybody who is a commercial fisherman always knows you're sort of at nature's whim. You never know how much you're going to catch. Um, lobster fisheries are not quota based fisheries, so um, it's survival of the fittest. You know the the most skilled fisherman is going to bring in the biggest catch. Um, but like you say, there's a lot in terms of the cost formula that fishermen cannot control. So, you know, year after year, you know, boat price might be really low or it might be really high. Um, in 2021, or yeah, 2021, we had a record boat price. Um, lobstermen made a lot of money. Input costs were high, but boat price was actually higher than that. And it was a profitable year. 2022, just a year later, the boat price has been about half of what we saw in 2021 and input costs for the business have skyrocketed even further. So it's a very unpredictable business year to year. I think anybody who fishes is by nature somewhat optimistic because you have to be crafty to make ends meet. You have to be a skilled fisherman and a skilled business person. You have to know when to set out your gear you have to know when to spend time on the water and you're going to maximize your catch. And I think, you know, for the harvesters in Maine, um, they've, they've gotten really good with that. What's difficult for our fleet is that it's very diverse. Um, so you're asking about boats that fish beyond 50 miles from shore. We don't actually have that in Maine. Um, we're an area-based fishery. So we have a state waters only fishery that takes place between zero and three miles from shore. 
and those are our smallest vessels and they can be very vulnerable. Um, there's not a lot, a lot of wiggle room in that business model. Um, our larger vessels, um, you know, we have a handful of boats that would be in the 50 foot range, but we're typically like 35 to 42, 45 feet long. So um, again, they're not super big boats. Um, there's a lot of unpredictability, unit costs are high, um, but I think over time, guys just figure out a way to make it work. They'll adjust their strategy on the fly and they learn how to put money in the bank in a year like 2021 to offset <laughs> this year, 2022, where, where profits are lower. So um, there are a lot of threats. There's a lot of anxiety. There is a lot of fear about the future, but I would just say fishing's in their blood and they're going to go and they're going to hope for the best. And they're just going to be as flexible and innovative as they can to stay in this business. And so far, so good. <laughs> People are still here. Sure. I mean, it's it's very much the same here, although we do have a significant number of, uh, in certain parts of the, of the area, southwest New Brunswick and southwest Nova Scotia, there is a, a more midshore, offshore component. Um, but but really, the, the profitability and the business model is really depends on how old you are, when you got in, uh, what your costs are. Um, so new entrants are finding it very difficult. But but I, I would uh, I would argue a bit about low prices. Um, we've really since 2012, even this year, we've we, we've been on an increase of shore prices for 10 years, um, and uh, it's been really very good for many years. Um, and 2021, as Patrice said, was an incredible year, probably the gilded age of of lobster. But also the last part of 2020, as soon as the pandemic started to snap back, and really the first half of 2022. Our prices, short prices, didn't start to, to change here until the end of June uh, the, last year. Um, the fall has been more difficult, but this winter prices are back up, you know, to uh, to fairly decent decent short prices. So, you know, if you look at the ten year trend, we've seen nothing but increasing prices every year, and and also in the market, uh, we've done a lot of research that shows that seventy five to eighty percent of the export value goes back to the harvester. Uh, very consistently year in and year out. And uh, just shows you how kind of healthy the industry is. But it's challenging and the inputs, I think Jim Atchison calls it the cost price squeeze. And that's a, that's a reality that the harvesters have because just because their costs go up doesn't mean they can charge more because the port price is the port price. Um, and they can't just say, no, we need more today. It doesn't work that way. So it's kind of unfair. Uh, but in terms of COVID, uh, the pandemic uh, for the lobster industry was the best thing that ever happened in terms of uh, economic impact. Um, it's a crass way of putting it, but uh, we've never seen a better protein market for lobster. And so as it adjusts out of the pandemic, uh, we're getting more back to sort of where we were in 2019, which was a very strong market as well. Uh, I just looked at the export numbers and 2022 is going to be a big year again. So just got to keep, keep pushing it and... Uh, and hope we, we stay on that trajectory. And Eric, Eric I might just add, and I, I realize this isn't my wheelhouse, but I could only, I, I'll only uh, put a little bit of a pr historical perspective on this, um, pulling from the the landings graph that uh, Jim has in his, in his uh, paper there that just shows, you know, for so long, from the 1880s to the 1980s, landings were, almost rock solid with some 
you know, dips in, in during the 1920s and, and 30s, you know, at least I'm speaking for Maine here. <clears throat> and, um, and, you know, roughly landing about 20 million pounds a year. And that started dramatically changing in uh, the late 1980s, 1990s. And by about 2016, the 20 teens, Maine was harvesting about six times more than it had been in the 1980s. And while we've fallen off that a bit, um, the value has been maintained as, um, although there's been these fluctuations we've seen with, with the, the, the coming in and out of the COVID years. But um, I just wanna make the point that um, there's really a whole generation of fishermen here who've known nothing other but than and a, a young generation of fishermen that have known nothing but and a booming fishery. And um, and and a lot of their older, um, their elders have been a lot more conservative about, um, you know, investing in bigger boats and so forth. But this younger generation have gone whole hog into, you know, big boats and venturing offshore, having, having a couple sternmen, and uh, and so um, I think there's a concern out there that if things start falling off and costs start um, becoming unsustainable and with the new whale regulations that some of these um, fishermen may be um, overcapitalized and um, unable to sustain their businesses at that scale. I'd be interested in um, you know, Patrice's or Jeff's perspective on that. Yeah, I, I do think that the <clears throat> the business model has evolved. Um, I, I've been with the Lobstermen's Association for 23 years. And from day one, um, I've heard from um, the older lobstermen that the young guys are overcapitalized and they're in for a rude awakening. And, you know, at least for this last quarter of a century, um, that hasn't borne itself out. And there have been some economic investigations um, that are showing that really the most profitable sector of the industry has been this sort of near shore um, federal waters fishery where you're carrying more crew because you're you're generating overall a lot more income. And I think as we broach the new whale regulations, those are the vessels that have more operating capital. They have more of an, an ability to invest into high tech, um, more expensive gear. And they may actually prove to be more resilient to some of the places where this management model is shifting, where you have a small vessel with a single operator, your ability to adapt is pretty limited. Your, your business model keeps your footprint really small. It keeps you close to shore. You have very small capital flow, um, and it does really limit your ability to adapt. So um, that's one of the things that we've really been advocating for through the association is that we have to recognize that our fleet is very diverse and it is the combined diversity of that fleet from our small inshore boats, our medium, and then our larger boats that together is what makes this fishery really, really work. And to lose any segment of that would really prove to be devastating. So, you know, I don't know, the jury's still out in terms of the history that's yet to be written, but I guess I, I'm a little bit... Um, skeptical about the fact that people are overcapitalized because I, I think that they have really created a modern business model that has proven very, very effective for them, at least so far. 
Yeah, I, I could add from the Canadian perspective something I forgot to mention, and that is that uh, we have very specific defined seasons here. So in virtually three quarters of the fishery, it's a two-month season. So you're either fishing May and June or you're fishing September and October. Um, and that's the whole Gulf of St. Lawrence. That's all of Newfoundland, all of Quebec, all of Cape Breton, all of Eastern Nova Scotia. Um, so those harvesters that have a lobster license generally have another job or a business. Um, and we have this the magic in Canada of the employment insurance program that is a uh, part of our social safety network where harvesters uh, have the ability to have two um, EI claims per year because of their harvesters. So, uh, you know, the reality of the business is a little different when you have that kind of support. But, but you know, we have a, if you have a two-month season, you, you, you kind of need it. Um, and we've set our fishery up to be that way. Yeah, I, I think another really noteworthy difference, there's, there's so many similarities between the U.S. and Canadian lobster fisheries, but, but there, there are some divergences on the business model. And in Maine, there's no cost to entry. Um, so the cost to get into the fishery in Maine is you find somebody to apprentice with, and then you sort of buy into the fishery at the level that makes sense for how you want to prosecute the fishery. And you start with a low number of traps and you build up. So in Maine, you can get a skiff, you can get used traps, you can build your way through boats. In Canada, there's actually a cost to entry to actually purchase the license. So the barrier of entry in Canada is significantly higher, is a much higher financial output to get in. Um, we've tried to keep Maine sort of more of the traditional model where you can work your way in and kind of um, not have it be a model where you need, you know, a, a big pot of money to actually gain access to the fishery. And that that really differentiates some of the, the profit margins and how the fisheries actually operate. Yeah. And, and that, that, I guess the, the, the difference as well is that then you, you can't sell your license when you're when you want to get out. So here you do have to buy your license, but then you can sell it when you retire, which is, yeah. is all part of the business calculation. Yeah, yeah. These are fascinating differences in how people uh, approach uh, their industry. And I am curious uh, about um, about how far offshore are these are these bigger boats venturing? Because uh, you mentioned largely most of them stay with zero to three miles offshore, as well as kind of if you have an idea of the share of the fishermen that have um, chosen this more, um, uh, I don't know if a, a more capitalized uh, business model um, and how noticeable that is compared to 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, so for Maine, um, the state actually regulates state waters, which are zero to three miles. So every harvester in Maine has a state permit. So we issue, the state of Maine issues about 4,800 of those. Of that population, um, just over 20% also get a federal permit from the federal government. So to cross over the three mile line, that's federal waters. You need to be permitted by the federal government. You do actually need to purchase that license. There's a limited number of those. So they have to be transferred from person to person. And depending on the market, those have been as high as $40,000, $50,000 for the permit. And they're sort of sliding back to, you know, $15,000 um, right now. So we in Maine have about 1,300 um, federal permit holders. Um, they tend to fish through the winter months. Um, they tend to be on the boats that would be over 40 feet, um, edging up 50 feet or above. Um, definitely a higher operating cost, but that allows them to, to kind of nudge over a little bit into the Canadian model where um, you're getting um, 
to land lobster during the winter time when it's a harder shell lobster, a higher yield lobster, typically a higher price lobster. Um, so the, the fewer boats who are operating offshore, although it costs more to do that, um, the cost that you're earning for each lobster that you land tends to be higher and does support that business. I think the big difference between 20 years ago and now is that most of those boats would come in for the summer and then go offshore in the winter. Now a lot of boats strictly fish in federal waters, and if they do come into state waters, they bring a smaller proportion of their gear. Um, so they've just sort of shifted away, and there's more of a separation. It's not, you know, exclusive. Um, but less crossover between those federal vessels and those state vessels because the, the state only tend to be smaller, smaller traps, smaller gangs of gear, um, and the big boats would have the chance to sort of overwhelm their traps, their boats, their gear. So um, they've been able to make their living by staying more exclusively in federal waters, which is a big shift. All right. This is uh, an excellent transition into the next uh, question, which is more environmental and climate related. And uh, this change in behavior I find fascinating uh, among lobstermen. Um, how has warming waters and ocean acidification due to climate change affected current lobster stock and longer term confidence in the fishery? Is there increasing concern regarding the ecological condition and changing patterns of the Gulf of Maine in general? Uh, Rick, if you don't mind starting us off. Sure, I'd be happy to start that off, and it's a big question. Um, well, you know, uh, climate change has certainly played a, a really important role in the past uh, decades, and we're really seeing its signature on uh, the shifting lobster stocks. Um, and just to sort of set the stage, it's important to realize that there's a really uh, striking temperature gradient from the northeast to the southwest along our coastline. So, you know, Bay of Fundy and eastern Maine are much colder during the summer than, say, southern New England. Um, but all these areas have been warming at about roughly the same rate as a result of climate change. But um, where Whereas the southern New England was sort of um, well into the, the lobster comfort zone, temperature-wise, if you will, um, early in that time, um, as things got water, uh, the adverse effects of warmer temperatures were really taking their toll. Um, we started to see it in the form of um, mass mortalities in Long Island Sound that knocked the stock down by 75%. It's never really recovered from that. Um, we saw uh, shell disease uh, rear its ugly head back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and prevalence levels went up to like 35% and have just pretty much stayed there ever since and spread started spreading to the north. Um, and that really knocked back the southern New England stock uh, seriously. Um, but at the other end of the um, range in, in um, Bay of Fundy in southern New England, I mean, sorry, in, um, in eastern Maine, uh, we saw that um, uh, that same warming was starting to bring uh, the lobster nursery habitats into the, into the comfort zone of, of the lobster. And um, it started to... Uh, uh, triggered this wave of, of larval settlement into 
uh, nursery areas that were otherwise at very low population densities or virtually vacant. Great looking habitat, but nobody's home. That all changed in the early 2000s and into, uh, to, you know, and, and on up to, to now. Uh, and it, it ended up elevating the, um, the, the fishery to its current status now as the um, most valuable single fishery in, in New England, in, uh, in the US. We're really seeing that that Eastern Maine area, that boom that, that we saw there uh, really accounted for that, that dramatic shift. But I, I should also say it's not just climate change. We also have been seeing the effects of, of um, depleting groundfish, and groundfish are an important predator in this system. This has been seen, um, you know, through throughout the range, whether um, you know you're talking Atlantic Canada or or the U.S. Um, a lot of people talk uh, point their finger to to um, the depletion of cod, and certainly cod are, are an important uh, predator, but really it's the whole, the entire assemblage of, of groundfish that include flatfish, found, you know, flounder, halibut, um, goosefish, uh, or, or monkfish as they're uh, usually called, um, other bottom dwelling or near bottom fish that, um, have been widely depleted since the 1970s, 80s. And, uh, and so that predator release only acted to favor lobsters. And in fact, you know, I remember talking to fishermen uh, back in the 90s already who were saying, you know, we're catching lobsters in places we've never seen them before, way out in the wide open. Well, there weren't any predators there anymore, or at least the big ones that really take their toll on the small lobsters. Um, were, were sev severely depleted. So it's a combination, the, the boom, I think we can say was um, uh, uh, re the result of the joint effects of both the favorable effects of warming temperatures, but also the depletion of these, these ground fish. And of course, taking the bigger geographic uh, um, perspective and including Atlantic Canada, you know, we're seeing this northeastward shift of the center of the the population, and definitely uh, southern Gulf of St. Lawrence has been um, seeing an increasing wave of of lobsters, and even Nova Scotia and and um, uh, uh, the the northern Gulf of St. Lawrence is seeing higher landings than they've ever seen before. Uh, so there's definitely this northward shift as a consequence of warming climate and depleted pressure predators. Uh, it's it's fascinating how ecological systems function in that way and, and how uh, connections ecologically just move in this in this truly dynamic manner um, that yeah, I mean, you often hear warming waters, you hear moving lobster. Uh, so you kind of scratch your head when you see um, the stocks being caught at this level. But there you have it, um, the um, the predation being decreased um, all because this was uh, uh, happening due to due to climate change. So um, we've got some almost increasing northern fishery news and um, are, th are there reasons that those of us in the southern part of the fishery uh, are people more nervous? Yeah, 
Yeah, so so I can jump in. I, I, you know, I think overall, from a fisherman's perspective, climate change has been positive, whether you fish in down east Maine or southern Maine. I think one of the confusing things about the center of abundance shifting north doesn't necessarily mean that things have crashed below. So, you know, as, as Rick described in southern New England, that's sort of a, a different oceanographic regime south of Cape Cod. Um, a different system. And, and we did see a crash and that is concerning, but the Gulf of Maine is its own sort of semi-enclosed system. Um, and we have not seen that crash. We've seen landings in Southern Maine on a, a very, very slow increase, um, you know, above flat, but certainly not on a decline other than the interannual variability. Um, we saw in the late 90s and the early 2000s, Midcoast Maine is where the center of abundance had, had really blossomed where it had been in Casco Bay prior to that. And then more recently in Down East Maine, and we're seeing those rises in Canada. Um, but nobody should think that we're not landing lobster in Southern Maine or Midcoast Maine anymore. The landings have have really been robust and, and steady and um, the resource remains very strong and people are optimistic about that. I think the other really encouraging thing that came out of the literature on climate change was a study that compared Southern New England with the Gulf of Maine. And it found very specifically that the sustainability measures, the stewardship practices that we have in the Gulf of Maine fishery, had they been implemented in Southern New England, would have lessened that decline significantly. So we can't prevent climate change. We can't prevent the impacts on the resource, but we certainly have a very robust um, conservation plan in place, which has provided a buffer. So if mother nature is going to provide conditions that are gonna um, see the lobster um, stock contract somewhat, we have sort of built in all the protections and that decline is going to be a lot less severe of a drop off than what they experienced in Southern Maine because we are protecting our baby lobsters and our oversized lobsters and our bycatch goes back alive. and. Um, we just have a lot of really practical measures that um, I think really honor sort of the biology of the resource in a really practical way. Um, and a lot of that stuff obviously translates up to Canada as well. So um, I think fishermen remain um, very optimistic. I think everybody is sort of bracing for some sort of um, softening of the landings over time, you know, how severe those are going to be. The jury's out, models say different things, but everything's basically saying, you know, you're not going to continue up here forever. Um, but we feel like there is a business model if the landings do um, start to start to soften a little bit in the next few years. And um, we've seen little bits of that so far, but I don't know, Jeff, probably you're seeing similar but different things up in Canada, right? Yeah, no, very, very much similar. Um... I mean, I was in Newfoundland a few months ago, and I, I was visiting the first live uh, lobster holding facility in Newfoundland. There never there hadn't been one there. They so that shows you how much more they're landing in Newfoundland and Labrador than ever. Um, the landings in the Gulf of Saint Lawrence and Cape Breton, eastern Nova Scotia, all trending up, um, uh, and in the southern part of the range, southwest New Brunswick and southwest Nova. You know, there's still. A wonderful business model there. There's still a, a great catches, um, but I mean we're seeing that it's the, the peak landings were 2016, uh, and we're seeing them kind of weaken off. I mean that's a very recent history, um, but uh, I think there's there's definitely some concern about what the future holds. And as we talked about earlier, when you're paying a million dollars for a license in LFA 34 and 500 grand for a boat, 
yeah, that's a big investment. And so this kind of thing keeps people up at night at times thinking about what the future will hold. So, I mean, it's like Patrice said, it's, it's hard to know what it's going to look like, but I think there's absolutely some concern in the southern part of the range and in the northern part, uh, sort of great enthusiasm and, and uh, optimism. Um, but as Patrice said, we also have very, very good harvest control rules in place in every LFA. If the, the stock goes down a certain amount, we have things that the harvesters can implement to adjust their catch, to adjust their effort, to ensure that we keep the, everything sustainable. Fascinating. Uh, Rick, would you mind elaborating on, um, for, for our listeners, the how vulnerable lobsters are to acidification, uh, where the science is there uh, for that aspect of um, this issue? Yeah, well, the, the, the story on acidification is a relatively new and, and short one um, compared to our <laughs> understanding of, of, uh, of temperature effects. But, you know, it, it's a topic that really only has gained some traction in, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and um, we're starting to learn a lot across uh, different um, uh, species and, and taxa. Um, and with respect to lobsters and, and crabs, um, some of the literature's showing that, um, you know, these crustaceans are relatively resistant to, um, to, to uh, acidification effects compared to, say, oysters and, and clams and so forth um, that are very vulnerable, especially at their earliest life stages when, you know, shells dissolve uh, on the the flats when on the mud flats just as they're settling um <clears throat> so uh the the concern is less uh, for the american lobster in any case less um focused on uh, uh on acidification effects or their adverse effects as they are on on the direct and indirect effects of of warming temperatures and you know, even among crustaceans, that varies a bit because as you, you know, we look um, west to some of the Alaska crab fisheries, they are um, their early life stages are seem to be more vulnerable to those changes. So, um, but our American lobster for now looks like um, from the work and the, the literature and some of the work that has been done by uh, my colleagues. Uh, suggests that um, there are mechanisms in place, physiological mechanisms that can cope with, with these changes in acidification. Fascinating. Thank you for that uh, elaboration. Uh, to go a little deeper on a notable consequence of climate change mentioned by Jim and Ann Atchison in their article, uh, as, lab, as lobstermen uh, south of Maine experience economic hardships largely due to uh, things like epizootic shell disease, how much concern is there along the main coast about this specifically? Uh, are there any preventative or mitigating measures for this disease? Um, and these two separate kind of larger capitalized federal waters fishing lobstermen operation, lobstering op operations and the, the smaller boats, um, is, is one uh, group more vulnerable to um, their share of lobster being affected by epizootic shell disease? Um, I, yeah, I guess I can. <laughs> yeah, um, so it, it's, it's 
it's not reached a crisis point for the main fishery. I mean, certainly that southern New England fishery that had pretty extreme um, warm water temperatures. I mean, temperatures measured on bottom that were really outside a temperature that, where you would expect a lobster to survive at all is where we really saw that disease kick off. And as Rick said, we saw it migrate into Maine. Um, the state of Maine puts um, samplers on boats um, from May through the end of the year. They do the state waters fishery as well as the offshore fishery. And one of the things that they do record is the presence of epizootic shell disease. So we will, on a year-to-year -year basis, have little pockets um, in you know, very small regions along the coast where we might see like a more lobsters than, than we would like to see. But it tends to be female lobsters who are in the reproductive phase who have not shed their shell in a few years. So there were a few years along the way where we saw it in newer shell lobster. Um, and that was very concerning. And that was something that they really monitored to see is it is it something where the lobsters have the shell on for a long time and, and the shell disease sort of has time to take effect, but they'll ultimately shed it out? Or are we going to see it in this sort of like run of new shell lobster, which represents the majority of the catch in Maine? And we really, we really didn't see that trend hold on. So, you know, you'll get calls in the spring from a handful of lobstermen. You know, I just, I just had, you know, a bunch of female lobsters with shell disease. They immediately call the state of Maine. They immediately re report that. I think it is an issue that's elevated enough that if somebody sees an anomaly in their catch, they always calling the state, offering to send up samples. So um, from my perspective, um, I have not seen anything that that is just sort of like a, a a really low level of sort of annoyance, but in a sector of the lobster stock that has had its shell for a long time is going to molt out of that and not something that we're really seeing sort of spread across the catch. So I think that translates into a pretty minimal um, economic impact on the fishery and, you know, something that much more rare um, we would hear in the offshore waters, like every once in a while, like a deep pocket of warm water, somebody might pull up a few, again, a lobster that's had its shell for a long time, a lobster that's going to molt out of that and not something that we're really seeing spreading through what's going to be the majority of our catch, those newer shell lobsters. So I don't know, Rick, if you've seen anything different than that in the data, but that seems to be the way that the trend has gone the last five years or so. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, um, I think you captured it pretty well there, Patrice. Um, you know, the highest prevalence levels are in essentially in the warmest places and also among the lobsters that hold onto their shells the longest. So um, the warmest places are near shore, southern New England. Um, and uh, we see, you know, the highest prevalence among the, the larger you know, oversized lobsters, but especially as as Patrice said, the egg-bearing females that are holding onto their their shells longer, their their um, exoskeletons longer. So, um, but you know, once that um, the epizootic took off, it did start spreading northward, and it did start penetrating um, main waters. It sort of wrapped around Cape Cod and into into um, into Mass. Massachusetts waters, you know, north of, of Cape Cod Bay, um, and it reached its tendrils into, um, you know, southwestern Maine, um, 
but it seems to have more or less stabilized it at a, um, at that pattern hasn't changed a lot in say the past 10 years. So, um, but, you know, with increasing warming, um, you know, the suggestion is that we might see higher prevalence levels, but especially in Southern New England, I mean, sorry, in Southern, uh, Southern Maine, if, if, if at all in Maine. That's definitely something to keep our eyes on as um, as the years go on. Uh, according to NOAA Fisheries, approximately 368 North Atlantic right whales are left after what they define as an, quote, unusual mortality event, end quote, which has occurred since 2017. As the recent passage of the omnibus spending bill here in the States uh, included a six-year pause on federal whale regulations, as well as funding for marine ecological research and fishing gear technological development, can you all weigh in on the significance of this pause and U.S. federal government investment in those uh, research and technical uh, technological development um, initiatives? Which research priorities do you all think are most important to fishermen as the North Atlantic right whales and the greater North Atlantic marine ecosystem? And what do you, uh, what do we know and not know about this endangered species? Uh, and how is this debate playing out in, in Canada as well? That is a broad question. <laughs> yep, yep, an, an yeah. easy one here. Um, I'll, 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 I'll kick it off. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'll, I'll kick it off. Maybe I'll just answer a piece of it and we can sort of um, circle through and, and, and work our way through. Um, in terms of the um, pause that we got from the federal government, um, that's truly historic and, you know, very, very meaningful for our fishery. Um, the U.S. lobster fishery, we implemented whale protection measures in the 90s. We did a significant um, round of whale protection measures in 2009, another significant round in 2014. Um, and then in May of 2022, we did a brand new 60% risk reduction, you know, off of our revised baseline. So um, we've taken rope out of the water, we've weakened rope, um, we've really expanded our gear marking, um, we now have closures on the books in Maine, so super high impact for our fishermen. Um, the the main fishery was scheduled to do bring that 60% risk reduction all the way up to 90% risk reduction by 2024. And that is controversial because the main fishery doesn't really have a documented track record of entanglement. So a lot of the risk that we're mitigating now in Maine is hypothetical risk. Um, we know where some of the entanglements take place. We know what fisheries they come from, but for a lot, we, we don't know. Um, when we look at rope that right whales are carrying, we can say it doesn't really look like the rope that Maine fishermen use. Um, we tend to fish a, a smaller diameter rope than some of the rope that comes off. So um, the Maine lobster fishery has really been advocating to kind of put the brakes on and have the federal government reanalyze the science. Um, we feel like they haven't followed the law as prescribed by the Endangered Species Act. What the federal government has done in giving us our risk reduction goals is they've basically said, anytime you know, we, we get to a decision point in our data or modeling, we're just gonna pick the worst case scenario so that we make sure that the whales get the most protection possible. 
Um, but actually what the law requires is that the federal government examine scenarios that are reasonably certain to occur. So not things that are like so far-fetched that they, that they will never happen. Um, so we feel like, you know, bringing us to a 90% risk reduction and ultimately we're slated to do a 98% risk reduction um, is something that would have potentially marginal benefit to the whales, but would have devastating impacts on our fishery. So this pause allows us time to kind of dig into these models, look at the data that we're using, really examine the implications of the assumptions. Um, and, and I'll give you an example of, of why that matters. Um, when the federal government um, did a forward population projection for right whales, they said, you know, how many right whales do we think we will have in the year 2050? And when they used very conservative estimates of reproduction, they used 2010 to 2018 in every scenario, even with closing the U.S. federal fisheries, the right whale population continued to decline. If they simply used the full um, reproductive data set, so the 90s through 2019, in every scenario um, projecting that population forward, the right whale population basically doubled. Um, and so it, it, it begs the question, you know, which is it? You took the worst 10 years on record or the worst eight years on record for a set of data that is without trend. And for us, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, they, they didn't really ask the question of, you know, well, is it likely that whales are going to continue to, you know, have more success in reproduction? And since then they have. Um, so we feel like, you know, they've just made very bad assumptions that will harm the fishery. So this federal pause, Congress recognizes that there's a lot of work to be done. They ha actually haven't solved the problem, but they've given National Marine Fisheries Service and the fishing industry and the conservation community and all of the stakeholders time to come together and really dig through those questions and try to figure out, you know, what the right risk reduction would be for our fisheries so that we can hopefully have a functioning industry um, and save the right whales. And in terms of the funding, um, that was a really important piece of the pause. Um, there's a lot of money that's going to come in for right whale monitoring and surveillance, so have a better idea of where, where right whales are. Models are now indicating that right whales will be even less frequent in the waters where Maine um, lobstermen fish and shifting more um, into Canadian waters and down to the southeast U.S. in the winter. Um, so to really get a handle on where are the whales, like what are the what are the fishing areas where we really need to be prioritizing for management will be important. But there's also a lot of money in there to continue to develop innovative gear solutions, which will, would include on-demand fishing without rope, as well as other modifications to a traditional fishing system that would pose less risk to whales that would allow maybe a more flexible, viable business model for some of the, the smaller vessels in our fleet. So there's a lot of really, really important stuff in there. Um, and it has set a high bar for all of us. We have a lot of work to do um, over the next six years to try to get answers and hopefully size that management to really address the actual risks that the right whales are facing. So I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thanks. So um, so the whales effectively came to Canada in 2017 and, and, and we did not expect them. They didn't tell us they were coming. Um, and so that is that is when we had that spectacular terrible mortality event, which caused us to immediately figure out how we could continue fishing crab and lobster and avoid um, avoid mortalities and, and entanglement. So we brought in 
uh, a whole suite of measures, uh, the dynamic closure management system where we have overflights and things that monitor whales. So if we see a single right whale in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, we close uh, nine grids for 15 days. And if another whale is sighted, we close it for the whole season. So we've got very, uh, we've invested millions of dollars in that system and it appears to be working uh, mostly. Um, we've also done a lot of things that Patrice talked about, um, you know, removing gear and gear marking and, and all kinds of other things like that, that, that we hope will work. So uh, the whole fishing industry is committed to it. We know it's vital to ensure market access to the U.S., uh, to everywhere else that, that cares about, about right whales. I mean, we, we have customers in, in Europe, in Scandinavia, in Asia, who are constantly asking us, you know, where are we with, with the, these measures? So it's important for the market. Um, and, and, and back to the, the challenges in Maine, we, we, we've always wondered why the Maine harvesters have, have been so um, impacted by these measures by NOAA because we, we, we like, like Patrice, know that there are a lot, a lot of whales there where, when they are fishing. So and we could never understand that. And also, we buy half of Maine's lobster in Canada. Uh, uh, we're your biggest customer. Um, and so we need that lobster to keep our plants going in this in the the summer and the fall. So uh, we were we've been very concerned about your industry, notwithstanding all of our close relations. So um, we were delighted to hear about the pause, um, and we're delighted to hear about more research. Um, I think one big thing that Rick will probably talk about is some of the work that he's going to do with the the, um, the new NNA lobster network, which will do some of that work, but. Uh, but no, we, um, we're taking it very seriously. And, and uh, the new measures, every year, the federal fisheries minister adjusts the measures. And we expect her announcement to come out in the next few weeks for this coming year. Um, and uh, But the fishing industry here is, is committed to doing what it takes. Yeah, perfectly. Well, both of you did. Um, and really, this, this pause brings more than $50 million to, uh, to start to address these really important questions and and they they go toward both lobster and right whales and the communities that depend on on this fishery so uh the, as patrice said this is a an unprecedented opportunity to uh, start to um to deal with these thorny issues um but i might divide the challenges into short term and long term uh, questions because um Certainly, you know, resolving the entanglement issue, um, area closures and so forth, understanding uh, right whale migration patterns and so forth, tra tracking them around, uh, you know, fields of, of lobster gear um, are really urgent needs and also understanding the impact of, of the new regulations uh, potentially on, on our coastal communities. All that's really urgent to, to know. But you know, a lot of these changes that are happening are happening as a consequence of of climate change, and um, and we're going to be seeing um, longer term, decadal scale uh, changes happening. Uh, we're already seeing them, and uh, it's really important to start to understand the the mechanisms behind them. And this is where you really have to sort of back up and and take the broader geographic um, view that not only encompasses our two fisheries, the US and Canada fisheries, Atlantic Canada and basically New England, but really pan back to the to the North Atlantic and start to understand what's what's happening here. 
And what's really interesting <clears throat> is um, that uh, some of these dramatic changes that have been happening um, pivot around 2010, when there was a dramatic regime shift in the, the Gulf of Maine. All of a sudden, we started to see um, uh, warmer Gulf Stream water moving into uh, into into the Gulf of Maine, and that had food web level uh, effects. And and let me just um, put that in a in a somewhat broader geographic um, uh, perspective. You know, we have um, really two we have two currents that are um, that that merge right off our our coast. There's the, of course, the Gulf Stream I just mentioned coming from the south with, with warm, salty, nutrient poor water. And then we have the, the, um, the uh, Labrador current coming from, uh, from the Arctic, bringing really cold, uh, nutrient rich water. And it's that Labrador current and the Scotian shelf water that has really fueled the huge uh, historic productivity that um, that the Gulf of Maine is so well known for. And in recent years, and again, pivoting around 2010, we saw started to see uh, the Gulf of uh, the Gulf Stream waters play an important a more important role in influencing the productivity of the, the system. And that's where we started to see things um, collapsing to some extent. Primary productivity, the phytoplankton the, that feed the, the zooplankton that right whales depend on, as, uh, as well as uh, you know, things like herring and even cod larvae and, and sand lance, all those uh, forage fish uh, are, are strongly affected by uh, the abundance of, of uh, these tiny crustaceans um, called copepods. And there's a particular copepod called Calinus finmarchicus that seems to be a, a real keystone species here. And, uh, and it's the prime and preferred food source for uh, the Atlantic right whale. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and so that shift in the distribution of Calinus finmarchicus and some of these other cold water zooplankton to the, to the north has, um, has played a role in influencing the, the migration of, uh, of the right whale to uh, northern waters and more prevalently in the, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So um, we have, we've just secured some additional funding from the National Science Foundation to start to look at what's, what's influencing this, these relative influences of the, um, the, the Labrador current and the Gulf Stream and um, and they're linked to the changes that are happening in the Arctic. And so the, the program that's funding this is, is uh, one of National Science Foundation's um, polar programs called Navigating the New Arctic. And it's really the only project in that portfolio of grants that have been funded that's looking at the effects of Arctic change at lower latitudes, at a lower latitude system. Most of those projects are looking at changes in the Arctic and the consequences in the Arctic. And here we're looking at the lower latitude effects. But having those, that larger scale view allows us to, to build these 
um, predictive models that essentially give us the lead time out decades um, refining those those uh, predictive models so we can better understand these linkages between between um, the changing climate, shifting lobster distributions, and shifting and migrating right whales. Got it. Yeah, as a data person myself, uh, it always seems to be uh, a need for more, uh, and then um, it's great to see uh, so much, so many resources poured into uh, learning more, uh, which is absolutely necessary. And um, yeah, the uh, if, if folks would like to learn more about the um, the right the North Atlantic right whale, as much as we do know, um, they their uh, habitat range, uh, how many we think are out there, um, and the context in which some of these uh, fatalities have uh, occurred uh, is on the NOAA Fisheries website uh, for you to learn more. They've got maps and, and tables. Um, so as we're closing out here on, a, on our hour, uh, are there any other things that you, you all would like to share about the lobster industry that we haven't already covered? Uh, next steps for policymakers, citizens, uh, the lobster industry itself. Uh, we'll start off with Jeff. Uh, keep eating lobster. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we've got a myriad of challenges and issues that, that are based on the world getting more insular and market access challenges where we're noticing it in all of the markets, the deglobalization of the world. Uh, it's more more challenging to, to, to sell protein everywhere around the world. So we spend a lot of time dealing with those market access issues. And I'm sure our friend, our people who are exporting lobster from Maine do the same. So uh, that, that's just a really a high level matter that uh, we're not going to solve today, but it's something that that is becoming more and more of a challenge, and that is worldwide sort of uh, nationalism and 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 market access sort of putting barriers up that that I'm seeing every day. Patrice, would you like to go next? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I would I would echo Jeff's suggestion, like eat eat more lobster. Um, I, I hope that people took away from this um, the incredible sustainability practices in place in the U.S. and Canadian lobster fisheries. They are virtually unmatched internationally. These are, are quite literally the most sustainable fisheries in the world. You know, throughout time where fisheries have been depleted and overfished and stocks have crashed, you know, these fisheries have blossomed. You know, in part, Mother Nature has given us a hand. Um, but really, it would not have been possible without the incredible conservation practices in place in both countries. And I hope people also understand the commitment that both countries have to North Atlantic right whale conservation. Um, all of the fisheries, the shipping industry, the governments are really trying to get measures in place that will allow these, you know, incredible heritage fisheries and traditions to continue um, and conserve this like incredible endangered species that, that is at risk. And people should feel really good that the fisheries are in fact making changes, that they are actively continuing to improve what they're doing. Um, and people should feel proud to choose this product and not be confused by the media and wonder, you know, if they're doing the right thing because so much time and energy has gone into um, really getting it right and really having an industry we hope that we will be handing off to the next generation proudly um, in both countries. So, Great. Well, 
it seems fitting to to sort of close this out with a little quote from Jim Atchison himself. And there's this wonderful book he wrote in 1988 called um, The Lobster Gangs of Maine. And, uh, you know, I, it's close to my heart because he did a lot of his interviews. You know, he's an anthrop he was an anthropologist. And so he studied the social systems of ter territoriality and uh, and um, used uh, the American lobster fisheries, his his uh, his um, uh, study um, case study. And uh, so he said that the the very first words in that book were, High risk and uncertainty in all parts of the world are the everyday lot of the fishermen. And, you know, um, I think we just reinforced that message with, with this podcast today. But I think we also take away um, a really strong message of the of the sustainability, sustainability ethic of uh, the participants in this fishery. Um, they are, uh, you know, they're they're essentially nat naturalists in the field every day. They're see they're seeing these changes happening. Their fishery is in their own backyard, and it's in their best uh, interest to to uh, make it sustainable. So that sustainability ethic is, and conservation ethic is in their their blood and. Right whales are part of the ecosystem in which they live and and want to see them continue to thrive. So it just means bringing people together to work on this project and problem. There were some, there were some excellent closing words there. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us today, Patrice, Jeff, and Rick. And uh, we will uh, have you uh, look forward to checking in, hopefully, with you all again sometime in the future. Great, Eric. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. What you just heard was Rick Wally's, Patrice McCarran's, and Jeff Irvin's perspectives on the lobster industry as discussed by James Atchison and Ann Atchison in their article, What Does the Future Hold for Maine's Lobster Industry? Maine Policy Review is a peer-reviewed academic journal published by the Margaret Chase Smith Policy Center. For all citations for data provided in this episode, please refer to the original article in Maine Policy Review. Special thanks to the Lobster Institute at the University of Maine for sponsoring this episode of Maine Policy Matters. Since 1987, the Lobster Institute has been fostering collaboration and communication in support of a sustainable and profitable lobster industry in the Northeast United States and Canada, as well as aiming to maximize the engagement of UMaine faculty and students with stakeholders in this iconic fishery. The editorial team for Maine Policy Matters is made up of Joyce Rummery, Linda Silka, and Barbara Herity. Jonathan Rubin directs the Policy Center. A thank you to Jason Heim and Catherine Swaha, script writers for Maine Policy Matters, and to Daniel Susi, our production consultant. In two weeks, we will be reading a summary of Jonathan Rubin et al.'s research on road salt in their report entitled Road Salt in Maine, an Assessment of Practices, Impacts, and Safety. We would like to thank you for listening to Maine Policy Matters from the Margaret Chase Smith Policy Center at the University of Maine. You can find us online by searching Maine Policy Matters on your web browser. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your preferred social media platform to stay updated on new episode releases. I'm Eric Miller. Thanks for listening, and please join us next time on Maine Policy Matters.